Welcome to chapter four on being God's friend. It's an odd thing to think about, isn't it? That we could be God's friend. And we have the Lord saying in Psalms chapter eight, that he is literally correcting his adversaries, fighting his adversaries with newborn babies. And who are, who are newborn babies? Us. Where are these, these avatars, Satan and, and the principalities and powers of darkness thrown to the earth and God creates these frail little beings to fight them. And these frail little beings he's going to use to give great power if we're submitted to him uh, in such a way that we could actually take on the most powerful non-God entity there is if we abandon ourselves to the Lord Jesus Christ. And so he actually says, if you get to the point of obedience, you can actually be my friend. So I start off with the story of a good friend of mine, James Robison. He's more than a friend. He's really like a spiritual father. And James, if you don't know James, um, it actually, if you sit and talk to James about all that he's done, it actually sounds crazy because of, and it's all verified. It's all real. But James was the guy that uh, Billy Graham dispatched to talk Ronald Reagan into running for president in 1978. And Reagan became president in 1980. And then James was close with, with Reagan. And it was James Robison that Billy Graham asked to go and bring his wayward son, Franklin Graham, back to Christ. And James Robison has done all these amazing things. But James was a guy that was incredibly anointed by the Lord at a very young age to be a preacher. And he became a huge preacher. And he was preaching in huge stadiums and arenas. He was absolutely supposed to be the next Billy Graham. James was a very close-minded, legalistic uh, preacher and pastor back in the 60s and 70s. And one day, James actually had the audacity to call Billy Graham and to say to Billy, I don't like the fact that you're hanging out with certain people. And certain people are on your stage, and how dare you? And, and James will say, you know, Billy, listen to him patiently for 20 minutes. And then Billy said, you know, James, these people that you're talking about, have you ever talked to them? Do you know them? Well, no. Why don't you go spend the weekend with Oral Roberts, he said. And so Oral Roberts and James had this thing with Oral, and James went down and, and stayed with Oral for a weekend, and they left best of friends. And it, it altered James' complete how he saw everything. I mean, how he, how he interacted with the church and James came out of his little narrow legalistic mindset and thought, you know, there's all these people who may do things differently than me, but it doesn't mean that they're wrong. Well, we tend to hide behind this legalism. Legalism means um, coming up with a bunch of rules that aren't in the Bible. And, and we talked a little bit at the beginning about how I was raised in a, in a similar environment. And it can be very, very damaging. And a lot of people out there in the world, when they, they hate Christians and they condemn evangelicals, it's because they have in their mind these people that have rules and regulations that they throw on them. And it's one of the things we have to fight against because, as we've talked about, we were given a choice in the Garden of Eden. Will I choose the tree of life or will I choose the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. And we chose knowledge over life. So God had to take that away from us. And we still pursue knowledge. We want to know. We want to see. As soon as God proves himself to me, then I'll believe in him. And that's why the way to Jesus Christ is faith. Because we've got to turn from our natural instinct to insist on knowledge. And instead choose life. Life, part of that is faith in the Lord Jesus Christ. It's not ignorant faith. There's certainly much, I mean, we have all the proof in the world that we need that Jesus is who he says he was and the scripture is real, but yet we do have to grab a lot of things by faith. And the more we pursue faith, the more faith we'll have. The disciples came to Jesus in Luke uh, chapter 17, I think it's verses five through 10. The disciples come to Jesus and they say, teach us to have more faith. 
Well, I'd like to have more faith. I think so would you. And Jesus says, well, this is where he kind of goes off about how incredible faith is. And faith is an incredibly powerful thing. And he says, then, this is how you have more faith. He says, which of you, if you had a slave coming in from the field, would say to the slave, sit down and eat and then serve me? No. When the slave comes in from the field, you would tell him, go serve me all my food. And then once I've eaten my fill, then you can eat. So you, when you've done everything you were told, should say, we're worthless slaves. We've only done our duty. And that's his answer to how we have more faith. So how do we have more faith? We exercise faith in service. We go out. Jesus said, if you love me, keep my commandments. And he also said, I can sum up all my commandments in two ways. Love God and love your neighbor. And who's your neighbor? Everybody. So if we go out and we love people and we love God, we will build up our faith as we walk in obedience in the Lord Jesus Christ. Now, Jesus said to his disciples, today I no longer call you slaves. I call you my friends because you have done what I told you to do. So obedience, the Bible says, to obey is better than sacrifice. God wants us to obey his word. He's not looking for us to keep rules. We tend to want to keep rules so that we can kind of have our sin over here. So we have our sinful nature, but look at me, God, I'm, 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 hurt. I'm not doing this over here. And God says, no, no, follow me. Get rid of all that stuff. Follow my word. Don't, you don't have to make yourself miserable. I want you to enjoy life. Have a great time. Love life. I created you to be filled with life, but sin is the thing that robs you from life. So don't come over here and sin, and then to make up for it, go make yourself miserable in a different way. Obey me, and you'll be my friends. And my friends know what his master is doing. When you're not a slave anymore, now you know. And we see these promises. We saw the one that starts the chapter in Isaiah. Whether you turn to the right or the left, you'll hear a voice in your head saying, this is the way, walk in it. Literally, we're, we're told we can know the Lord that well. Romans 12, 1 and 2 says, if we make our lives a sacrifice and we renew our minds daily, then we can know the good and pleasing and perfect will of God. We can know the word will of God? Yeah. How? By renewing our minds daily and by making our lives a living sacrifice. And how is that? Because when you obey the Lord, it becomes so natural. You hear his voice. And you literally become his friends. You may be wondering why I'm using the word slave instead of servant sometimes. It's actually interesting. The word that, that is used is bond servant. So the King James Version is the only one that really gets it right. I'm not saying you need to read the King James Version, but I'm saying the King James Version says bond servant. What a bond servant is is somebody who sells himself into slavery for a period of time. And so it's a conundrum. Bond servant really means slave, but it's a slave who will be freed at some point. And so really the correct version, most of the time where you see servant would actually be slave, but especially in our American lexicon, that, that's a, a harsh word. And so it doesn't sound quite right. But actually, I think it's more helpful when we think ourselves as slaves of Jesus Christ, not servants, because servants kind of, servants can quit. There's a different idea there. When we realize, no, I am, I am so much uh, obedient to my Lord that I'm a slave to him. And then when I'm actually a good enough slave, he says, okay, now you're not a slave. Now I'm calling you my friend because you obeyed my word. So there's the conundrum there. We can be friends of the Lord Jesus Christ. So one of the things we see here though, is to be his friend means to love what he loves and to hate what he hates. Uh, Proverbs 20 talks a lot about how, how hard it is to find somebody who's actually truly a loyal friend. Boy, I, I found that to be true and you probably have too. 
that there's a lot of people who will say you they're your friend, but they're your friend as long as they have something to take from you. And the moment that you need from them, they're in the wind. And Proverbs 20 talks a lot about that. There are other passages in Scripture. If you truly want to be the friend of the Lord Jesus Christ, you need to be someone that he can count on you because you know you can count on him. We love what he loves. He loves. We hate what he hates. And who does he love? His people. And what does he hate? Sin. We need to get to the point where we're so repulsed by sin that it's not something we have to try not to do. It's something that we ourselves are repulsed by. You get to the point of... Um, you know, I've often said, you know, you think about, um, men will come to me and say, well, you know, lust or whatever. And I think, well, you need to get to the point when it comes to adultery or sexual sin, like you would about stealing. I mean, when you go into a shopping mall and you ask to see a diamond, does it ever occur to you that you could just pick up the diamond and run through the mall and probably get away with it? No, it's not something that would even occur to you. Well, you could be the same way about all sin. The idea of being a thief like that is so anathema to you, it doesn't even consider it come to your mind. Well, people who walk with the Lord Jesus Christ closely enough, who become his friends, have that same thought about all sin. The idea of slandering somebody or gossiping about them or stealing or being greedy um, or sexual sin, those things become not temptations or something that you think about that titillate you. They think you're, they can become disgusting. I remember uh, I knew a guy named John Gordy once. John and I served on a board of a ministry together. And every time I knew John, he was crying. I mean, every time he'd hear something. And I remember them talking. It was, um, we were talking about high schoolers and the problems we were having in the ministry, helping them. And they were talking about homosexuality and how it was coming in. And John just started to weep uh, on the idea when they talked about these girls and the the pressure they were in over lesbianism. And there's nothing in John that thought of anything other than how sad that sin was and what could he do to rescue them. And I found out by John's testimony, he'd been a fa famous football player but for the Detroit Lions back in the 50s. And uh, his testimony was amazing. I think I talked about that in a different book. But that's the idea of sin, that you are so repulsed by it, repelled by it, that when you see it, you feel righteous indignation. You feel sadness for the people. You want to rescue those people. You, you, it's not something you struggle with anymore. Now, again, as we've talked about, you're not going to get that there by self-effort. You're going to get that by just obeying Jesus in the moment. And the devil will always be there. And you'll, you'll hear me say this over and over again because we don't talk about the enemy enough. The devil will always be there pecking at you. You're going to fail. You failed yesterday. You're going to fail tomorrow. So why try today? Now, Keep going. So it reminds me of a episode of The Simpsons where Lisa loses at a competition with her saxophone. And so Homer, the dad, is trying to comfort her and and uh, she's all depressed. And he says, Lisa, do you know what happens if you try? She goes, what? He says, you might fail, so never try. And that can be somehow how we are in life. But we realize that if we're Jesus' friends, that is our drive. That is our main thing, to make that thing happen and to obey his word. We don't care about the voice of Satan. We don't care how many times we failed in the past because we know if we submit to the Lord Jesus Christ, he will give us the power to push forward. And as we push forward and we obey and daily, 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 we'll find one day that we wake up and we're no longer slaves. We're his friends and our desires have completely changed. Now we know, and we're going to get into this a lot. I keep promising pretty soon we're going to be getting into the Sermon on the Mount. The promise is that the more we're his friends, the more hated we will be by the world. How do you know if you're really, really walking with the Lord Jesus Christ? Because those who hate him will hate you. Second Corinthians says that we are the smell of life to those going to life and the stench of death to those going to death. 
hey, when you follow Jesus, when you are loving and gracious and you obey him and people hate you and actually come after you on purpose, it's because you smell like death to them. You remind them of their own uh, end that they're going to come to if they don't repent and change. So let's work diligently to be the friends of the Lord Jesus Christ. So what does it take then to be his friend? This is where we get into the three Ps. Passion, patience, perseverance. It's really important as we look at these three that they kind of are counterintuitive. They don't necessarily go together. Nobody naturally has all three of them. We often tend to have too much of one and not enough of the other. Let's start with passion. Read Isaiah 117 and look at all the little action verbs there in Isaiah 117. We've already talked about that a little bit. When we look at scripture and we look at all the people who are our heroes, it's always about action. You don't see the Lord bringing up these people who sat in their library studying all the time and who knew the Bible the best. Again, we want to know the Bible. It's about people who are carrying out his will despite the risks. It's people of action. People are passionate about the Lord. People are passionate to stand up for justice and truth and against sin. You know, a good example is Jehu. So we have back in the first Kings, I think, second Kings, um, Jehu, who was anointed to be king someday. But, you know, it's like a lot of other things. He was anointed to be king, but nothing happened because Jezebel was reigning at the time. And Jezebel, Ahab had been killed. She's reigning in the land illegally. She's using the two kings of Israel and Judah as her sort of proxies. And she's actually reigning. The Jehu's sitting back doing what he does when all of a sudden Elisha sends one of his prophets and says, what are you doing sitting here? There's a wicked woman ruling the land and killing God's people. Why are you sitting here? And Jehu goes, oh, geez. So he goes inside and the other, the other soldiers say, who was the crazy, hairy looking guy with the animal skins? And, and he says, oh, never mind. They go, no, he said something to you. He says, ah, he says, I should go take out Jezebel. And they say, we're with you. So Jehu goes down after the two kings and he's riding and there's a guy looking out and, and the king says, who is that? And he goes, he rides like a wild man. He rides like Jehu. Here's Jehu now, passionate, abandoned to the will of God. He goes out there, he kills the kings. Then he goes up and he has Jezebel killed by one of the eunuchs that she castrated. It's ironic. It's a picture of today. She castrated the guy, but he's the one who throws her off and kills her. Jehu was a man of passion. He was a man who was going to obey the calling that God had given him. If you want to be God's friend, you need to be someone who's passionate about what God has called you to be, whatever that might be. And it may be that he called you to be a mother a grandfather, a great business person. It doesn't have to be some big thing on the stage, but whatever he called you to be, passionately obey him. That's number one. The second one, perseverance. Perseverance is really hard. If you're passionate, you will be a natural person that wants to burn out. You don't want to come up here impulsively and then fade away. What you've got to be is passionate and then keep it going in perseverance. We see that people who are in a hurry get shallow results. If you have a shallow effort, you'll have shallow results. One of the things I like to bring up is, is the unions of the 1970s. If you're my age, you remember that back in, you know, being a child of the 70s and 80s, all we drove were the Japanese cars. You, you wanted a Toyota truck. You did not want a Chevrolet truck back in those days. I drove a Toyota Celica, 1974 Toyota Celica was my first car. I paid 500 bucks for it. Why? Because American cars back in those were garbage. Why were they garbage? Because the unions continued to negotiate deals to just satisfy the next contract. And they knew that they were negotiating deals that couldn't be sustained. 
Well, that lack of sustainability had effect on quality of American cars. Now we're back and, and American cars are great, but, but at the time, people just did whatever it took. We see the passing of the buck today with the national debt. Nobody wants to take on Social Security because whatever it takes to get myself reelected, get the next bonus, whatever it might be, instead of doing the hard work. Well, that's perseverance. Perseverance is saying, what can I do to make this a lasting thing over my lifetime? You look at the getting rid of slavery. I mean, Newton and Wilberforce, those guys gave their lives, their livelihood. A lot of times, those of us who follow the Lord with perseverance won't see the change in our lifetime. It may take decades before we see the results of our work. Perseverance is taking that passion and not relenting all the way through, even when we see nothing coming from it. And boy, any person who has really followed the Lord can tell you, because of the way that things go, that slow churning of people, waking them up, so many people asleep in the light, it can be very frustrating. And we see that throughout scripture. We see Jeremiah, we see Isaiah, we see Habakkuk just going, Lord, come on. This is, this is taking forever. Look at Moses walking around in the desert for 40 years with people. It never seemed like they ever changed. It just seemed like it was continuing on. And yet today, look at how we all know the name of Moses. So it takes perseverance, passion with perseverance. Then lastly, patience. And here we go back to the King James word. But I think the King James word for patience really is helpful. It's long suffering. And I think that is what patience is. And it's hard to have patience. If you're passionate, boy, you're impatient. Now, I have no problem with passion, but boy, do I have a problem with being patient. And if we're impatient, it shows a lack of love. It shows a lack of an understanding of what God did for us. You think about how patient God has been in each of us, letting us feel over and over and over. And yet he still is there, the eternal loving father. And that's what he expects from us as we're passionate. As we persevere, we also must be patient with ourselves, the process, and other people who will fail us. Some will fail us out of bad intentions. We move them aside. Some will fail us out of a lack of competence or a lack of training. And those people we want to be endlessly patient with to continue to bring, us, bring them along with us because everybody has their own strengths and weaknesses, and all of us do too. We have our strengths and weaknesses, and we don't want to elevate our own strengths and condemn somebody else's weakness, understanding that they may be much stronger in, in, than we are in something. I often joke about my, my wife, who has a hor horrible sense of direction, and GPS has been the greatest thing ever for my, my dear wife. But back before GPS, she could never figure out which direction she was going, and she was getting lost all the time. And yet, one day I remember being at a neighborhood party and I talked to some guy for half an hour about something and and I left and she came running up to me and said, I'm so glad you were talking to that guy because he's totally miserable. He is? Oh yeah, I could see all of his face, this and that. She was discerning all the things about him. What were you talking about? And I was like, uh, my new car or something. <laughs> and so, you know, here you have a woman so discerning, so able to see things that I couldn't see. So if I were to look down on her because of her sense of direction and she was to look down on me because of my complete lunkheadedness about what's going on inside of a person, then we're not making a team. God says, come together as a body of believers. Husband and wife come together as one because she has a great skill that you need and you have a skill that she needs. And so I can make sure she gets where she needs to be. And then she can make sure that once we're there, I'm actually seeing things as they really are instead of the facade that people are putting on. Let's work as a team. So we see then that this balance we need to have, passion, perseverance, patience. It's very difficult to have all three of these. 
So let's work together. And John Wooden said that besides love, balance is the most important thing. And I think John Wooden, the greatest coach in the history of coaching, would know a little bit about that. If we want to be God's friend, we've got to have passion, perseverance, and patience. Obey the Lord. Do it with great passion. Don't relent. And be patient with other people as we go along that way.